Support for Healthcare Americana comes from Freedom HealthWorks. With Freedom HealthWorks, physicians, employers, and patients can thrive in direct care. Visit FreedomHealthWorks.com to start your journey into direct care today. From Freedom HealthWorks, it's Healthcare Americana, a show about innovators, idealists, and pioneers in healthcare. Hi, everybody. This is Christopher Habig back in the captain's chair of Healthcare Americana after a brief pause for uh, the birth of my wife and I's first child, a beautiful little baby girl who's now a few weeks old and gave me some time to uh, enjoy the family life. And so big thank you to Adam for stepping in and all the wonderful guest interviews that he did uh, over the past couple of weeks. We hope you enjoyed them. But like I said, I'm back and, and ready to go. So coming back with you with Healthcare Americana better than ever. Today's guest is Deb Gordon, an innovator, advisor, and author of the Healthcare Consumers Manifesto. Deb, thanks for joining us on this episode of Healthcare Americana. Thanks for having me and congratulations on your new baby. Thank you. Thank you. It's uh, It's been an interesting journey. Everybody has all types of advice and uh, we're taking it one day at a time, but she's an absolute angel and course whenever I tell anybody that they say well just wait until tomorrow everything everything could change there so <laughs> we are uh, we're over the moon uh, we are we're having too good of a time here so it is nice to be back and you know you have the dubious honors I guess of being the first uh, first guest I've, I've had a chance to chat with in quite a while so you know there's a lot of stuff that I have pent up ready to ready to chat about and help uh, reform healthcare and make it make it uh, a, a change for the positive, I would say there. So, Deb, you you described yourself uh, when we were talking before as a recovering health insurance executive. Now, what in the world does recovering health insurance executive mean? Uh, well, no disrespect to the, you know, many colleagues and, you know, brilliant friends from the health insurance industry, but... I would say it's safe to say not everyone loves their health insurance company or even if they feel fine about their own health insurance company, they don't love the industry. Um, And so I just nod to that reality that, you know, health insurance is an important function in our healthcare system and it's, it also causes a lot of problems. Yeah, we won't pull any NPS score data on it, uh, but it's pretty low. It's 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 rivaling, I think, Comcast and other cable companies as um, being a nefarious type of organization. Uh, people aren't happy with it, or people don't even know what to do with it, right? And actually, one of the first uh, projects I ever did in my career, I worked on a, a consumer study of health insurance, just trying to get attitudes. Well, how do people think about health insurance for small business people in particular. And one consumer, I still remember this was many years ago, described getting mail that back then there was mail, you know, physical mail, getting mail from her health insurance company was like getting uh, a letter from the IRS, like an audit letter from the IRS. It was (laughs) scary. So I have to acknowledge, I loved what I did and I felt really good about the work we did. Um, but the industry as a whole has some improving to do. Sure, sure. I don't think a lot of people would argue that one. Um, the majority of your career was spent, and in, in I like I like that you use this word, but you're trying to help people access health care. Again, going through your health insurance days. Uh, brings up an interesting question for me always when we talk about access, because, again, coming from 
Freedom Health Works in the direct primary care world, access means a lot of different people, a lot of different things, excuse me, to a lot of different people. In your mind, was there any issue with how the words insurance and healthcare are used being almost interchangeable? And how did access fit within that uh, construct? That's a great question. It is sort of a pet peeve of mine. I try not to be persnickety about it, um, but it is sort of a pet peeve of mine how those two terms, insurance and healthcare, are intertwined or interchangeable. People say, I, got, I don't have healthcare how consumers think about these things. Over uh, many chapters in my career, uh, I've learned that it doesn't matter to the average consumer who's doing what. They do just see it as healthcare, you know, one big brush. And is it a health insurance policy or a doctor's policy or a hospital or, you know, government? It, It sort of doesn't matter to the regular average American. It's just something's wrong with my healthcare. It's hard to get. Mostly that's, you know, that's the answer or that's the complaint. So for me, access to healthcare is really about being able to get in to see a doctor or a clinician. It, it means being able to afford the care you need and feeling assured that if you get sick or you need to be seen or you need treatment or medication, that you'll be able to do that. I would totally agree with that. Now, one thing just popped in my head, you know, when people say I'm not happy with my health care, but what they really mean is their insurance or they don't know how to use it or they think there's a lot of barriers to seeing a physician. Is that a lack of education or is that some potentially, I don't know, lack of a better word, unethical marketing on some of the powers that be, whether it's government or insurance, that are trying to marry healthcare and health insurance together? So when I was a health insurance executive, I led marketing and, you know, we had to be and we were very precise with our language. We were very careful to be accurate and to be clear, you know, we're making this policy. The government requires that policy. Your doctor has this policy, whatever it might be. And I remember we did research. We did focus groups with consumers to try to understand. I I think at the time it was like why people weren't staying with us or why people were switching plans or, you know, some issue with our, we were trying to get at how to improve member satisfaction and retention. And I remember, I don't remember the specifics, but I remember that the people in this focus group conflated, you know, they'd say, well, I can't do this on this plan. And we'd be, you know, in the back room screaming, no, that's not our fault. That's their fault, you know? (laughs) And yeah. And actually, when you're a marketer, when you're really consumer driven or consumer oriented, you realize it doesn't matter whose fault it is. If it doesn't work it for the consumer, it doesn't work. And so I think well, I, I can speak with confidence that we were we were not trying to conflate anything. We were actually trying to really separate ourselves from government policies or, you know, from actually we would love to line up with doctors. Most people love their doctors and hate their Mm -hmm. insurance company. Um, But we we operated under state contracts in Medicaid and subsidized insurance. And we really wanted to be clear, like they're making us do this. We couldn't say it this way, but you know, these are government mandates and these are our, this is where we have discretion. Look how great we are in the places we have discretion. In the end, it just doesn't matter. Consumers are like, you guys work that out. 
make it work for me. Make it affordable. Yeah, give, you know, the policies, I don't care why there's a hurdle you're making me go over, whether it's you, literally the health plan or you, the government agency or some some regulation, I don't care. I just know it's hard that I've had to go over another hurdle and I don't understand why that should be. You know, I think that's the consumer mentality. Oh, for sure. Hurdles and barriers, right? And and I, I obviously don't think we, you know, our, our elected representatives helped themselves about 12 years ago now when discussing the Affordable Care Act and everything was billed as health care reform. And the people looking at that saying, well, there's nothing about actual health care here besides making it more expensive and harder to go see a doctor. This is health insurance reform. But... I guess health insurance reform on a big national debate is just not as sexy as saying that it's healthcare reform. And again, mixed messaging, right? You're, you're piling, you're taking health insurance, but you're saying it's healthcare reform and you're confusing a lot of people, unfortunately. So always interesting to see how that word access, you know, builds into these kinds of things. And another fun word to kind of try to dissect in healthcare is the term quality. So, with that in mind, I wanted to discuss the concept of shopping for healthcare purchases, something that's near and dear to your heart. It's a good portion of your book as well, and it's something you discuss at length in there. So tell us a little bit about this. I'm going to use some air quotes here, this, this concept of shopping for healthcare purchases, because again, we're talking about some novel stuff here that doesn't exist in any type of industry. These types of mental barriers don't exist in any type of industry. And so why does this hurdle, this barrier for shopping exist in healthcare? So I, I approach this, you know, very logically, but it's obviously not how most people think about it. If you think about what Americans spend on healthcare each year out of pocket, it's about a trillion dollars between healthcare and health coverage. And that's roughly 30% of three and a half trillion dollars. So I call it for round numbers, a trillion dollars. And if you think about what other markets we spend a trillion dollars in, I mean, that's a little bit more than we spend every year at Christmas time or holiday time. If you think about how much effort goes in to getting our dollars, you know, attracting us as customers before COVID. Stores stay open late, we get discounts, we get promotions, bundles, everything. All this advertising is thrown at us to try to attract our our dollars. And none of that happens in healthcare. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I I just approached it like, in what other market could consumers spend a trillion dollars and basically have no seat at the table? So there's a lot of talk in healthcare about patient-centeredness and consumer-directedness. But in reality, the system was designed largely between employers and insurers, doctors and hospitals. And the consumer is kind of left out of that equation. Mm -hmm. In today's world, consumers bear so much of the cost directly. The system hasn't really caught up to that reality. But more and more, consumers are paying the bill. I think that makes us the customer. And we should be entitled to shop just like we would in other other markets. It doesn't work that way. It's obviously a lot more complicated. The products are not just sitting on a shelf, you know, that we can pick up, look at the ingredients or, you know, try on a, a jacket or something like that. It's not so simple. But 
there are premises or concepts that we could start to borrow from those more consumer-oriented markets. You touched upon a couple of different things there, and I always like to, whenever somebody has some interesting points, kind of go back and, and recap a little bit. First one being the fact that it's not just on a shelf. I mean, we I, I, obviously, again, healthcare.gov was, was it a billion dollar website or something that didn't even work for the first couple of months? I mean, there's just money pits all over this thing. And so, you combine that with different types of regulations, um, associations helping people band together for medical emergencies are on pause right now. I mean, people are starving for some type of innovation in an industry that has basically closed the gates and saying, you know what, we're making a lot of money here. People hate us, but there's no impetus to change. Usually when that happens, people vote with their dollars, right? In the middle of all types of potential protests, the dollar is going to be the most powerful one. You follow the money trail. It doesn't sound like people are even able to do that based on what you just said. I am such a fan of what you just said. That's the whole premise of my book is that consumers move markets with purchasing power and consumers shape the products and services available to us with our wallets. We say, yes, we reward companies that serve us better. We punish companies that don't serve us well. You know, look at taxis and ride hailing, look at movie theaters and Blockbuster and Netflix. Around every industry, you can see examples where consumer purchasing power really moved a mountain. And mm -hmm. so in healthcare, I can, you know, we can speak about why it doesn't work quite that way in healthcare, but my belief is that that is time limited, that uh, that consumer. Consumers don't think of their doll. I mean, the first most fundamental barrier in healthcare and to healthcare shopping is that consumers do not think of the money they spend in healthcare as shopping. So right. I interviewed dozens and dozens of consumers. And the first question I said, not even a question, I would explain, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to have you think about some of your recent healthcare purchases and just have you tell me about them. And... At first, people would say, what's that? What do you mean? What's a healthcare purchase? And I would say, oh, you know, I mean, like when you spend your money on your healthcare, or, you know, you spend your own money on healthcare or health insurance. And then I stopped, I, I could see they were confused. So I would jump in with the explanation. I stopped doing that and realized it's a finding in itself. People don't even think about healthcare spending as purchasing. And if you can't think of, I mean, Actually, it goes even further back than that. People don't always even realize it's their money. That's why people are surprised with bills. They're surprised by their insurance rates going up. They're, they're surprised and confused by their deductible, the co-payments. And, you know, if you realize, like, you're the customer of your own health care and health insurance, let's be, let's not follow our pet peeve, fall into our pet peeve. <laughs> I appreciate right? that. Then... <laughs> than uh, keeping myself honest a little bit. Um, but if we, if we realize we're the customer and this is our money, and it is our money one way or another, it's our tax money, it's our, you know, it's our wages that are being funneled, off, you know, stunted because of rising health insurance, health benefit costs, or it's our money literally out of pocket. If we start to think of that way, 
then we can start to say, well, is this how I want to spend my money? Am I getting value for my money? Are there alternative ways to spend my money? And once you get into that mindset, all of a sudden those questions, just the reflection on the money spent becomes extremely powerful. So I think once once consumers really embrace really understand and sort of embrace that role as purchaser or customer, you know, all this other stuff that makes it hard to shop for healthcare, it's still going to be there and there will be entrenched interests, you know, people making money today that hold on to it mm-hmm. um, and resist change. Sure, but sure. My gosh, there's nothing like the American, there's no, no one more powerful than the American consumer. So once we act that way and adopt that role, I feel very confident we can, we can change how healthcare works. You provided some great insight there on some of those conversations you were having when you're researching your book. And you've done a litany of other studies and surveys talking to people, not only in the direct care space, but patients across the spectrum. Give us some insight into what some of those other conversations look like. I mean, what you just said about people kind of looking at you quizzically and saying, what do you mean healthcare purchases? Again, I think that's a great point that that tells you something right away that, you know, you can't just fill out a bubble on a form for that type of a feedback. And I think that's a lot of what, you know, DPC physicians out there are, are experiencing. It's just like, well, these answers don't fit in a nice little bubble or a nice little sheet. So what were those conversations like? What other kind of insights and, and conclusions were you able to find talking to people? So one of the other, I think, I won't say universal, but near universal findings, very common findings that I I had in consumer interviews was pervasiveness of financial anxiety. So I interviewed people, I did not screen them for income, but you know, by context, I could tell some were more well off, some were less well off, but it was not, everyone had insurance one way or another, everyone was insured, no one was Uh, living in poverty, as far as I could tell. So these were, let's say, middle class, upper middle class people who you might not consider vulnerable. The anxiety was almost palpable. And it, it sort of didn't matter how much money someone actually had. Of course, I don't really know that. But what I, what I heard was consistent. And that was anxiousness, anxiety about how much will things cost whether or not I have that money in the bank. So a lot of people don't, most Americans don't. But even if you feel comfortable financially, you're probably feeling a little bit worried and vulnerable about your healthcare costs because of the great unknown. And because of these stories, which are real of people going bankrupt, people going on GoFundMe, um, you know, huge bills, you know, sensational, but real huge hospital bills or ambulance bills, you know, and I think that's something we should not ignore. People, I think, imagine vulnerable people as destitute. And I think the average American is vulnerable or feels vulnerable. Absolutely. And and totally agree with you. We call them the functionally uninsured. And it's a term that people have heard us talk about a lot before when you're paying, oh gosh, average cost of a health insurance policy for a family of four is like $20,000 this year. And when you have a five, six thousand, eight thousand $8,000 deductible, but you only have $400 in the bank, what the hell are you going to do with it? What can you do with it? Right. That is, right. that and drives a lot of anxiety, right? 
you can be employed, you can be insured, you can be working, you know, you can have even some amount of secure, you know, otherwise feel like you have some security and just that equation you laid out can wipe you out or feel like it's going to. So, so the thing that I saw was that people avoid healthcare, even care that would be covered because of that worry. So even educated people could be completely confounded and overwhelmed by their health insurance benefits. And the fear of things costing more than they should or could, you know, than they could afford would keep people from going to the doctor at all. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, what's the point of having insurance if you're so afraid of using it that you can't even go to, you know, get healthcare when you when you feel like you need it or should get it. Right. So it sounds like it wasn't a very pretty picture of survey responses when people were uh, asked about their policies and how they use it. One, they didn't understand that they were forking over personal dollars, hard, hard-earned dollars for a policy they didn't understand. And two, they understood that they were kind of for you know, paying for something that they couldn't afford in the first, you know, anyways. So kind of a kind of a scary dichotomy, a one-two punch there. Um, Deb, we're going to pause right there and hear from our great healthcare Americana partners. We'll be back after this message. There comes a time when the man of the house must take charge. Family planning is a tough conversation for many, and at Happy Dad Vasectomy, we understand that decision isn't easy. When your family is complete, our no-needle, no-scalpel, no-stitches procedure will give you peace of mind about your family's future. Happy Dad Vasectomy conveniently books appointments within two weeks of calling and has locations in central and northern Indiana. Visit happydadvasectomy.com to learn more. Happy Dad Vasectomy, the easiest part of family planning. Hi, folks. Welcome back to Healthcare Americana. I am Christopher Habig, back in the host chair, and I'm talking to Deb Gordon about her efforts to study the impact of now DPC for patients here in the second segment of, of today's episode. So, Deb, switching over from kind of general healthcare surveys into more of the defined DPC space, obviously, uh, Freedom Health Works, this is where we've been living in the past uh, five years of doing this and working with doctors all over the country. Tell us more about other projects you've been working on and how you came to focus on DPC. I have long been interested in DPC. So when I was the head of marketing for a Medicaid health plan, I met a entrepreneur who was running a DPC clinic in the Pacific Northwest. And it was so compelling. You know, the idea that you could take low dollar, high probability care out of the insurance system, which is by definition supposed to be for high dollar, low probability care or events, made so much sense to me. And I, you know, as an insurance executive, I thought we should facilitate this and we should, it's in our interest as insurers and consumer interests to kind of allocate services appropriately, if that makes sense. So line up insurance for what insurance is meant for. And, you know, here's a novel solution for things that really don't belong in the insurance structure. And we actually looked at trying to set up or, or sponsor clinics to serve our members. And it was a big idea and it, it kind of didn't get off the ground. It was really different. We were operating under a Medicaid contract. We would have had to sort of navigate that those regulations. 
And, you know, I've learned in business and life, things only happen when somebody really sticks with it, you know, when things have <laughs> persistence. A yeah. Um, and yeah. And it was sort of, you know, I think I, in hindsight, I wish I had stuck with it a little more. I can't remember why it didn't happen. I just think it was a lot of moving parts to make work. But I, per, yeah. you know, retained my interest in that model. I think it's really, you know, I've just spent however many minutes telling you about all the things that consumers have told me don't work for them about healthcare. You know, they're afraid of what things are going to cost. They don't really know. They don't really perceive much value in their health insurance. You know, we didn't talk about all the administrative burdens and uh, rules that people really object to. And I know doctors and other clinicians do as well. Consumers hate that too and perceive mm -hmm. that they, they're sort of onto it, that the insurer is trying to keep them from getting care. So right. here you have a model where you can like go anytime, you can call anytime. You know, it took a pandemic to make telehealth accessible or phone consults, you know, reimbursable or whatever. That's crazy. You know, it is nuts. People, we've been living yeah. on the internet in digital technology for so long, but insurance rules and, and regulations have prevented those things from really being allowed to take off. So here you have a model that kind of loose, you know, takes off those chains. Um, and so I, I think DPC really represents what a, a lot of the reforms that consumers are wishing for. I'm curious about some of the some of the findings um, based on your surveys of DPC patients and the work you've done there. Um, I would say from a personal standpoint, like I love the idea and that's why I was really energized by this conversation, you know, talking about putting some studies sort of surveys behind DPC because that's one of the things people hit it with is, oh, there's no peer-reviewed journal data out there, studies, that type of thing. And I'm thinking, all right, yeah, that's fair. But again, this doesn't fall into the nice, neat little buckets that the previous health insurance-based discussions have. So, you know, taking information and then turning it into actionable data, I get really excited about that because I want to know what motivates people to join, you know, our clients' practices. And doctors all over the country are saying, hey, what type of doc patients should I be going after here? And I've always found that it's not necessarily a demographics issue. And I think that's something that's very, very unique to this industry. Um, I want to get your take on that because I, I always draw a line between demographic and psychographic information um, indicators, excuse me, when it comes to trying to find who's a good fit for DPC. So I'll let you react to that and get your thoughts on it. So uh, when I was a senior fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School, I teamed up with a medical student who was training at Emory while she was also getting a degree at Harvard. And we launched a study of a direct primary care practice in, in Georgia. And we never published our findings, but we did design and start a study of, of the consumer impact of DPC. So I, in my own research, had only ever really seen literature on the clinician side. Why would a doctor want to go into DPC? What are the benefits? They seem really clear and obvious to me. You know, there's a lot of literature on how to set up a practice. Um, but I found less, if any, real insight into 
what role does DPC play for consumers? What is the consumer perception or benefit of DPC? Logically, I could say it should do this and that. It should clarify you know, costs. It should increase access to primary care, which we all would say is a good thing. Uh, but I didn't really find a lot of data. And in particular, what I wanted to, to get at was the perception. So does, it, does DPC and that certain access to your doctor uh, improve some of these other problems that we've just been discussing? So, and then, um, you know, I, we only studied one practice, so I don't think I can speak to the demographics. Our demographics were, you know, pretty, pretty, I think roughly representative, slightly more females answered our survey than males. Uh, we had a good age distribution. Um, it's skewing slightly older, you know, slightly uh, 45 and up, um, more married, you know, kind of nothing notable that I could see on the demographics. And it wasn't necessarily a rep you know, nationally representative sample sure. or anything like sure. that. Um, but uh, for example, we had, you know, most people in our study were college educated or above. Um, we had a pretty good income distribution. So, you know, I think there's some question about, um, you know, maybe, maybe it skewed a little higher income. Uh, so it skewed a little higher income and educated, but that could also be the market we were in. So I don't want to put too much stock into the demographics. I think the psychographics are where it's at. I think for DPC to resonate, you have to, um, I think really understand first and foremost that you have an option, right? That you don't have to, you're not stuck in the system as it's always been. I think that's the number one obstacle to DPC is people just don't really understand it or know about it. Um, and, you know, it's, it's hard to argue with it once you understand it. So I think that's maybe the number one thing. Uh, right. We wanted to know, like, did, did the consumer feel more comfortable discussing costs? We, I, we did another whole study on uh, discussing costs, healthcare costs, and were doctors being trained to do that? And there's a lot of data on um, part of the cost, price transparency issue is nobody talks about costs. So for example, we asked people to agree or disagree with certain statements. I feel like my primary care doctor is comfortable talking to me about the cost of my care, eighty-four percent said strongly agree. So, like the vast majority wow. felt like their primary care doctor could talk to them about costs. That does not reflect national surveys. You know, if you ask a national representative sample of American consumers, they will say, "I wish I could talk to my doctor about costs." You know, so there's a really big survey. Um, from several years ago where 70% of people said it would be good to talk to my doctor or their staff about costs before I get care, but only 28% had ever had that conversation. And here you have 80, 84% saying they strongly agree that they can have that conversation with their doctor. I think that's, you know, that's one of the benefits. They, they also, you know, expressed high degrees of trust in their doctors, uh, a sense that they're being heard, by their doctor, a sense that their doctor has time for them. Like 
there are so few consumers who say that their doctor has time for them. But in this survey, 89% of people said they strongly agree with that statement. So, so I think if we could, you know, maybe we could plug a, a broader study and we could pull together your audience and, you know, do something a little more representative of a broader audience or a broader sec- segment. But early data from one practice as patients show these people are dramatically more satisfied on very specific dimensions of consumerism than the average consumer of healthcare would be. Oh, absolutely. And some of those numbers, I kind of opened my eyes up and, you know, again, speaking from firsthand experience, when we were asking and my wife and I were asking, well, how much is it to deliver at this hospital? What are all our fees and costs associated with this? There's no doctor or hospital that knows that. They all said, well, you have to call your insurance company. And then guess what? You don't get an answer out of them either. They say, well, your deductible is this. And I said, well, no, how much is it? Because we are able to shop around for birthing centers. It's not an emergent type of situation. We didn't get in a car wreck and get whisked away to the nearest care for anything life-saving, you know, thank goodness. But we had a chance to shop around and, and to find that answer was pulling teeth and let alone if there's any complications or follow-up visits or anything like that. And that's childbirth, right? There's, there's all kinds of different things that could go into that. But even from a primary care level where it's like, well, there's certain amount of things that you most likely will see. How does transparency just not come into the equation? Um, and that's a rhetorical question. I, I think we all know that one. We've, we've <laughs> talked about that subject enough, um, you know, through the years. So, I wanted to kind of dig into what you, what else you were seeing on more of that psychographic. Were you finding people would join a DPC practice after being users or having an experience with the healthcare system? So in this survey that we did, we were studying, and it was actually an interesting uh, snapshot. We were studying a practice that had converted to DPC. So most of the people we were talking to were patients who had stayed with their primary care doctor through a transition to DPC rather than joining new. Um, and we we did look at things like compared to a year ago before the practice had turned to DPC, um, you know, how, how much had their costs changed or their worries about costs changed um, compared to a year ago. and. You know, they were generally favorable. I could look up some detailed re- results on that. Um, I'm not sure I can fully answer the who joins, but uh, one thing I can say uh, is that, you know, I think another big question or concern people have about DPC is whether or not there's some kind of degradation in quality or access to care. You know, in this practice, they were very worried very concerned about making sure their patients had um, sort of access to the specialists they needed, for example. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they would have arrangements or referral partnerships with other practices or, you know, with specialist practices, and they would publish costs. So, you know, you, you pay for this membership with us, these this is what's included and then these other services are extra and here's what the costs are and right. so they want they were 
keen to understand was that a barrier and so we asked for example um in the past year so since you've shifted to dpc how easy was it to access specialists you needed or your your doctor felt you needed and 75 percent said it was extremely easy most said extremely easy 53 percent but with somewhat easy it was 75 percent so i think that's one measure that folks were able to get the care they needed or that their doctor was recommending even from a dpc model where some of those costs would be more squarely on them to pay out of pocket yeah Um, yeah and then the other thing i would just say is that 89% rated the care from their own doctor, the quality of care from their own doctor as excellent and another 6% as good. So I I think that there's some perception that if you, um, you, DPC is only for healthy people who don't need any care. And I just don't think that's, that does not seem valid based on results. Right. I agree. I think it's a lot of the opposite is the chronic people, chronic uh, conditions who have a doctor that's going to listen to them and answer their questions for the first time and maybe ever there. But so kind of what struck me again, you know, I'm sitting here nodding my head. Yes. And saying, yeah, yep, yep, yep. That sounds right. sounds right. It's putting the primary care physician back in control of their patient's overall health. And that is something that I think a lot of primary care physicians out there will say, you know, we gave that up when we joined a lot of hospital systems, when we started taking third-party payers, we gave up those roles and responsibilities to the detriment of our, of our patients. And so it, it sounds like a lot of the data that you're finding is, and I like this term to distinguish this, but this DPT practices and the DPC studies that you're doing, it shows that physicians are taking patients and treating them like people again. They're putting that human element back into healthcare, back into that localized, the community that they're building. And something something like that is very, very powerful. And I think you and your audience know how much clinicians or doctors want that. You know, I've interviewed a lot of physicians who say, I, you know, the most rewarding part of my practice is the relationship I have with patients and you know, that is so hampered by productivity standards and schedules and, um, you know, 10 minute appointments or whatever it might be. But I think the message I would have for your audience is consumers want that every bit as much, at least as much as, as their clinicians. So nobody is happy with the 10 minute appointment. Every, you know, consumers do not feel heard, do not you know, necessarily trust in the healthcare system. They might love their doctor, but not feel like they can access them. I have a great doctor, but I wouldn't try to call her with a concern. You know, I would try to, I personally would just kind of wait it out or wait for an appointment. But if, I, you know, I know a DPC practice, the, the whole point is that I could call if I were concerned. Absolutely. Well, let's get you into a DPC practice or have your doctor convert into a DPC practice. I think that would be a win-win for everybody there. Well, Deb, thanks for chatting with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on Healthcare Americana. Once again, that's Deb Gordon, healthcare innovator, author of the Healthcare Consumers Manifesto. Keep up the good fight. Uh, Look forward to following your progress. If anybody out there 
uh, wants to help participate in some of the studies that Deb is doing, send us a note at info at healthcareamericana.com or fill out the contact form on Healthcare Americana, and we'll make sure that we get to the right people at the right time. So more information we have, the more survey responses out there for DPC patients, the better off we're going to be. Thank you so much. Healthcare Americana is powered by Freedom HealthWorks, managed by Melissa Turpin, produced by Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro. Send us your thoughts at info at healthcareamericana.com. I'm Christopher Habig. Thanks for listening. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. And hey, if you're interested in becoming a sponsor, let us know that too. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.